Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Welcome back, everyone. Hopefully you've already had a chance to listen to part one of this week's episode all about the stories we tell about the creation. That means that this episode is part two, which is all about the narratives of the creation of man and woman. And as an important note that we'll continue to harp on throughout the whole year, every story in the Bible is about black and brown bodies, black and brown bodies, not white bodies. Yes, even though all of our artistic renderings, especially in the LDS tradition, are primarily, if not exclusively, depicting white people, the Bible, just like Lee said, is about black and brown bodies. We're so excited to dive into this episode talking about the stories of creation of human bodies. And one of the things that we noticed when we were preparing for this episode was that it was particularly difficult to stay with the text. For me, my mind immediately wanted to jump straight to the fall, which doesn't happen until next week and next week's chapters, and offer a different kind of feminist interpretation. But we both tried to be really intentional about staying with only the portions of text assigned. This means that in this episode, we will be examining the story of the creation of human bodies, mostly through the lens of gender and sex. We'll be exploring ideas that might be new or maybe even challenging, but we really invite you to stick with it, to stick with us, and to stick with the text. So from there, we're just going to dive right in. So the creation of human bodies begins in the latter part of Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. It says, quote, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. The Abraham account adds a little bit more detail to this by saying, And the gods took counsel among themselves and said, Let us go down and form man in our image after our likeness. And then we also see the Moses account that offers a bit of difference here that says, And I, God, said unto mine only begotten, which was with me from the beginning, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and it was so. So we see that the primary differences between these verses are who is doing the creating. In the Genesis account, there is one artisan God. In the Abrahamic account, there is a council of an unknown number of gods. And in the Moses account, there is God and Jesus. And so just to be clear, even in the Mormon tradition, we don't 
actually really know who created the earth. (laughs) It's just so freaking wild to me. (laughs) We also see in these verses a couple of other things um, established or maybe asserted in the text. We see that humankind is made in the image of God. We'll go more into depth on this in a moment, but the second thing that we see asserted in the text is that humankind, specifically man, is given dominion over the earth. So as we move into verse 27 in Genesis 1, we see these ideas kind of start to take form even more clearly, and we also begin to see a narrative that becomes even more strongly male-centric. Genesis 1 verse 27 reads, quote, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. End quote. So we see here in this Genesis account that the authors of this account have already assumed that God is a man. In this sense, men and women are created in the image of maleness. The Moses account actually gets a little more problematic because the assumed gender of God becomes more solidified. In Moses chapter 2, verse 27, it says, quote, And I, God, created man in mine own image, and in the image of mine only begotten created I him, male and female created I them. In this case, God is not only assumed to be a man, but is assured to be a man through the masculinity of Jesus Christ. I think here's a good moment where we can focus on the concept of men being what's understood as good and normal. Uh, in a patriarchal society, men are valued over women. Men and traits of and certain traits of masculinity are seen as really more important, um, more influential, more impactful than other genders or traits that are either gendered as feminine or, or do not support the certain brand of masculinity that society values most. Because men are more valued, they appear more in society. They hold more positions in quantity and more prominent positions of power. Their stories and their experiences are centered in films, books, myths, religion, and media. A person is more likely to watch a show or read a story or hear a biography about a man and his experience than they are to experience a character of another gender. And because of the prevalence and frequency of the cis male centered experience, our brains are kind of unconsciously anticipating the centering of men because it's become because it's been made to feel and seem so normal as if we're fish swimming around in water. This is kind of the way things have always been. So it's not really a choice made consciously at every moment, but it's a consequence or this natural urge to categorize things. And it's these patterns that are based on frequency and prevalence that create this illusion of normativity. Men and masculinity is seen as normal in a patriarchal society. It's expected to be played out again and again in every single sphere. And also because it's unconscious and it influences our understanding of the world, the masculine norm also shows up in the way we read and interpret scripture. If man is the assumed norm, then a person reading or even writing the text would have, in the presence of ambiguity and in the absence of an explicitly stated gender assignment, assumed Adam's gender, just like they assume the exclusive maleness of God. Whether or not there is a theological or experiential basis for the assumption, because of the unconscious masculine norm. The pattern of dominant masculinity is not necessarily inherent in the Godhead or in Adam, 
but, but it is applied to these concepts by humans, like paint is applied to a canvas in order to create an image or pattern that matches current worldviews. It's also important to note that man, even as a reference to mankind, is assumed to be the expected, but not necessarily accurate, catch-all term for all genders. This is also what I mean when I say that mm, masculinity is the norm. It's the expected or default appropriate gender reference when we're talking about humans in a wide and general sense. A potent example of this shows up in one of the prompts in the Come Follow Me manual for this week's chapters. In response to the question, why is it important to know that we were created in God's image? How does it affect the way we feel about ourselves, others, and God? The manual suggests the following, quote, If you have small children, you might want to read together and play a simple game. Show a picture that depicts Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ and ask family members to take turns pointing to a part of Heavenly Father's or Jesus's body. Then the other family members could point to that same part on their bodies. Now, if you're a cisgender man, I can imagine that this exercise would be pretty straightforward. However, if, like us, you are not a cisgender man, this exercise will likely raise some eyebrows. I've yet to see a Mormon depiction of a god with breasts or a vulva or a pregnant womb. This exercise only operates as intended under an assumed male norm standard. I find myself liking the Abrahamic account the best for this verse. Chapter 4, verse 27 reads, So the gods went down to organize man in their own image, in the image of the gods to form they him, male and female to form they them. It seems like wordplay or a form of like word substitution from prior verses, but we really like the ambiguity of the gender of the gods in these verses. Sure, there's still a normative of masculinity and creation of man and mankind, but the gender of the gods is never mentioned, which really leaves a lot of room for all genders other than someone who's a man. What is really striking to us about this part of the text is that in all three narratives, man and woman were referenced or or arguably created in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. This occurs prior to the rib begetting Eve event that happens a little bit later. So we just read the verse that says the gods organized man in their own image. In the image of the gods, they created male and female. But we only understand that there is one singular human body created at this point. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, at the end of the verse it reads, And God blessed them, male and female. I have a couple of thoughts about this verse. We just mentioned that it's really interesting that male and female were created in verse 27. But our traditional Mormon understanding is that at this point, only one human body has been made. And we understand that this is a male human body, Adam's human body. The following interpretation arose from my very close reading of the text. And when it arrived to me, I thought, oh my goodness, this is so exciting. And I really wanted to conduct some research to see if there had been any academic scholarship on the topic. But unfortunately, my hope was in vain. I did not come across any academic or 
or really well-researched sources that I could share to back this idea up. So I talked with a friend who has some pretty extensive knowledge in the area, and they shared that there may just not be any academic scholarship on the topic just yet, because a lot of the ideas surrounding it are pretty new. So I'm sharing it on the podcast because it did arise from the text, and I'm hopeful that in the future we'll have further academic scholarship or a theological scholarship on this topic. But until then, this close reading is what I have to offer today. But I believe there might be a textual precedent for an interpretation of Adam as an intersex, ambiguously sexed, or non-binary being based on the use of the them pronouns and references to multiple sexes simultaneously present in a single body. An interpretation of this kind could also imply that if Adam was an intersex, ambiguously sexed, or non-binary being who is made in the image of God, then it could also follow that God is an intersex, ambiguously sexed, or non-binary being. I do want to note here that languages work differently, and pronouns that occur in English do not always occur in the same way in other languages. It could be that the presence of a them pronoun is the product of translation and not necessarily inherent in the original text. Somebody who is way more knowledgeable in Hebrew, Greek, and English languages and the process of translation is going to have to be the one who ultimately makes the claim on this. But I believe that the possibility of an intersex or ambiguously sexed being is still possible even without the presence of a them pronoun in the text based on the evidence of multiple sexes simultaneously present in the single body of Adam. This is a radical interpretation of the text and would absolutely require further research and scholarship centered on the intersex and non-binary experience. And as a cisgendered person, I am not the right person to do a full analysis on this topic. However, I'm putting it out there just in case it helps or inspires someone to take this idea and run with it. If you do, please return and report. <laughs> the parts of the text that do stay consistent to our traditional understanding are really twofold. First, we see the relationship of the human body to the earth through its elements of creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and the other accounts are consistent on this point, reads, quote, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. So the human body, according to this narrative, is made directly from the elements of the earth. This is more than implied kinship of the earth, like the kind we talked about in the prior episode when referencing the generations of creation. But this actually seems to solidify that familial generational kinship with the corporeal embodied mortal elements. Dust is earth and air. Dust was solid rock before it came into contact with the transformative forces of fire, wind, and water. So to say, then, that we are children of the earth is both textually and biologically supported and sound. But earth is really only part of our somatic makeup. The second consistency we find in the text it's, is the origin of the spirit. Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 continues, quote, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The Moses and Abrahamic account are identical in this case and are not quoted. In these verses, we are to understand the soul's origin as breath, specifically the breath of God. And the Hebrew word used for breath of God is ruach, which is the word for spirit, breath, or wind. 
A really quick tangent for those who might be looking for a link to Heavenly Mother or the Feminine Divine. A few years ago, I was listening to the A Thoughtful Faith podcast with Gina Colvin, and as her guest, she had Rachel Hunt Steenblick, author of Mother's Milk, Poems in Search of Heavenly Mother, and a contributor to the BYU Studies essay, A Mother There. In the episode, Hunt Steenblick provided a list of symbols and imagery of the Feminine Divine or Heavenly Mother. On this list are mountains, trees, birds, oil, the tree of life, the menorah, Asherah, and Ruach, the Hebrew word for spirit, breath, or wind. It's interesting to me that while the gender of God is assumed to be masculine, the animating, enlivening, and souling force is a word with specific ties to a heavenly mother. So if you want to like go down a rabbit hole, there you go. But for me and for us and for the podcast, I think we're less intrigued by the gender of Ruach or this animating life force than we are by the God-spirit-breath concept itself. What's fascinating for us is this infusion of an other-than-earthly matter into the created body by an otherworldly being illustrates that the human body is not only kin to earth, but kin to God as well. Because within the earthy body is the breath, the spirit, the life force of God. The body is the site of kinship with both the earth and the divine. It is the meeting place of the mortal and the cosmic. And this is mind-blowing, like honestly, endlessly fascinating to me. And I'm not sure that I'm ever going to like totally wrap my brain around it, but I'm, I'm really excited by this. One of the really tricky parts about this chapter and about the concept of the creation of human bodies was I really personally wanted to be able to engage with the creation of the body separate from a conversation about gender and sex. I wanted to keep it kind of gender and sex ambiguous. But the text continually wraps both gender and sex into the narrative of the creation of the body. This almost kind of forces us to look at or consider gender and sex when we consider the creation of the body. If we move into Moses chapter 3 verse 7, it reads, quote, And I, the Lord God, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, so we've covered that part so far. But if we continue in the verse, it says, quote, And man became a living soul, the first flesh upon the earth, the first man also. So remember that up until this very moment in the creation, God said of the singular body named Adam in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 that male and female were created in the image of God. In this verse, both sexes were present in the singular Adam form or singular Adam body. But in Moses chapter 3 verse 7, Adam is assigned a gender. It feels really important to take a moment here to make a distinction between gender and sex, especially for those who maybe are new to this conversation. The definitions that we're about to give are pretty simplistic and are not adequately nuanced because of time and limitations of the episode, but they are a start. We offer this as a starting point and not like an end-all be-all definitive definition. In general, we understand a person's sex to be assigned to them based on the appearance of their external reproductive organs. On the other hand, gender is different from sex in that gender is a concept communicated to others and to the self through a performance. Gender and sex may or may not match. 
Yes, thank you for that refresher. And I think what's really interesting here is that Adam's gender assignment happens with the infusion of soul breath. And an even closer reading of the of the text reveals that there's no textual evidence that God assigns Adam's gender in any of the three accounts. So in absence of evidence, assumptions are made that God assigns Adam's gender, but other assumptions could be equally true. Like an equally possible and valid argument could be made based on con- context clues of the verses surrounding the gender assignment of Adam that Adam assigned his own gender to himself once his spirit was breathed into him. And this is really important. If we look at all three accounts comprehensively, we kind of see that one of two things are possible, and it almost seems that these are mutually exclusive. Either both man and woman were created in separate bodies prior to the Rib and Eve event, which would mean that Genesis is written and presented not only out of order, but is also incorrect as written, and Eve wasn't created from the Rib of Adam. Or the second option is that Adam is both or neither or more than a male and female in one body. Again, make of this what you will, but even in the LDS tradition, it's clear based on the text that our clear-cut story about the creation of gendered bodies isn't as certain as we thought it was. I find this really funny because in our LDS rhetoric, we sure do make a lot of truth claims about the eternity of gender and sex that may or may not be supported by our canonized text. I like both of these interpretations, both of these options. I think that they have exciting implications and avenues to explore. So I don't have like a particular preference. I just think like, ooh, look at all of these ideas that we could possibly play with. (laughs) Now that the body of Adam is ensouled and definitively gendered for this time, God places Adam in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's some mention of certain rivers and stones and also the commandment to Adam that says, Of every tree of the garden thou thou can freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For, for, For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Then after that, Adam names all the creatures of the earth, and God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, quote, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. So the Lord God caused a, a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Okay, so there's a part of me here where I'm like, I don't want to talk about the apologetic or the complementarian approach to the concept of um, help me and Eve's creation, but I feel like it's an it was a necessary step in my understanding of the creation story and of Eve's story, so I'm going to include it here um, in case it helps others. Beverly Campbell is the author of a book titled Eve and the Choice Made in Eden. And I really, really love this book, actually. It was quite um, transformative and an important element of my feminist journey and my feminist awakening. In the book, she quotes David Freeman saying, quote, According to biblical scholar David Freeman, the Hebrew word translated into English as help is izzer. This word is a combination of two roots, one meaning to rescue or to save, and the other meaning to be strong. The concept of a helpmeet, 
with meat being understood and defined as complementary to or equal to or corresponding to. So together, help meat is understood as a strength and saving force that is equally and directly corresponding to the strength of its partner. Said differently, Eve, this strength and saving force, is equal to that of Adam. Beverly Campbell suggests that the alternative reading of Genesis 2 verse 18 read as, quote, It is not good that man should be alone. I, God, will make him a companion of strength and power who has a saving power and is equal with him. End quote. I appreciate this interpretation of help meet because it is a radically different way of viewing Eve's purpose and relationship with Adam. It does help us twist free of the narrative that is popular in the broader Christianity umbrella that Eve was created to be subservient to Adam. I want to celebrate this reading and I want to honor it for all the goodness it has done for me, for Eve, and for all the women who have been affected by misguided and harmful tellings of her story. However, and I say this with a little bit of a heartbreak in my body, I can like feel my tummy dropping and my heart breaking a little. I'm still not certain that this interpretation of Eve truly twists us entirely free from the patriarchal grip for two reasons. First, that Eve, whatever her purpose, was created by a man through a man. In verse 23, Adam says, quote, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. End quote. As an interesting side note, I want to point out that though Adam's gender assignment is unclear, the text makes it explicit that Adam assigns Eve's gender at her birth or her creation. We don't have time to dive into that, but I do think it's interesting to see who assigns gender to who in the text. We see in this verse that Eve is woman. She is of man. A masculine deity and a masculine human is the birthplace of biblical womanhood. It can be argued that Eve's creation is derivative, that woman is a derivation of or from man. This reminds me again, like we talked about in the episode prior in part one of this episode, the philosophies of Plato, that women are beings who are first created as men, but become other than men. Secondly, the language in Genesis 2 concerning Eve is not the language of self-determination at all. In verse 22, Eve was, quote, brought unto the man. In verse 20, God makes a helpmeet for Adam. The word for in that line, God makes a help me for Adam, means in consideration of or in the interest of Adam. According to the Genesis narrative, Eve was not created in her own right. Her origin was not independent of Adam. If one believes the precedent that Genesis 1 sets out, that the word creates, Eve was thought, then formed into being, only when considered in relationship to Adam. According to the Genesis 2 account, Eve's conceptualization occurred only when the need for her presence was made evident in relationship to a man. This perceived need, or absence of a necessary opposite, is rooted in complementarianism, which is the belief that men and women complete one another through opposite but equal qualities based on perceived innate characteristics that are defined by gender. 
And for both Channing and I, we do not think that compliment that this uh, kind of complementarian approach to Adam and Eve is helpful or healthy because it implies that men and women are not whole, complete beings without one another. A complementarian reading is supported by the text, and it's certainly and certainly the narrative supported by the church, but it does not align with our values or our beliefs of original goodness and wholeness contained within one individual self. A case can also be made that complementarian readings of the text also do not account for masculine privilege. Equality is implied but never achieved because both parties are always completing one another. They are always in service to the wholeness of someone else, giving pieces of their pizza away to complete others while expecting that their pizza slices return to them to make them whole. Maybe in another or in a different framework of society, complementarianism might work. But in a patriarchal structure, the scales are always tipped in favor of men. Even if complementarianism was healthy or capital T irrefutably true, and this is something that the church and strangely enough, a lot of new age systems like assert this complementarianism belief, even if it was healthy or possible, there can be no true complementarianism within a patriarchal structure until all human experience is valued equally regardless of gender a complementarian relationship model is an unattainable wavering mirage author taylor petrie wrote a book titled tabernacles of clay and i am suggesting this because it has a because it has a fascinating segment on the historical development of benevolent patriarchal attitudes within the LDS church in both a grassroots and a top-down institutional response to second wave feminism. So basically what Petrie says is that complementarianism was born out of benevolent patriarchy, which was part of the church's response to second wave feminist movements, including the rights amendment. So highly recommend to check that out. Up until this point in the episode, we've really focused almost entirely on the cis-heteronormative interpretation of the creation of bodies, but we wanted to make sure to share some other perspectives that we think offer additional pathways for interpretation. We really love this quote from Blair Osler's book titled An Introduction to Queer Mormon Theology, where she writes, quote, I was first introduced to queerness of procreation in Mormon theology by Taylor Petrie, a professor of religious studies and women's studies at Kalamazoo College. In his essay titled Toward a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology, Petrie illuminates a precedent for queer procreation in Mormon theology. As Petrie points out, godly creation is far queerer than we have previously imagined. In the creation of Adam and Eve, there is no account of cisgender, heterosexual copulation being a necessary means of reproduction. He writes, quote, Both spiritual and material formation takes place without any sexual union. Furthermore, males alone perform the creation of Adam's body. Even Eve is reproduced from a male body with the help of other males. The Lord penetrates the body of Adam and creates Eve. End quote. Osler continues, quote, In the story outlined in scripture, the creation of a woman was produced by three men, God the Father, Jesus Christ, and Adam. It could be the case that Heavenly Mother was involved in the creative process, but there was no direct account of it written in scripture, nor, nor is her role explicitly stated in the, LG, in the LDS temple ritual. 
Osler also argues that even if Heavenly Mother had participated in the creation of Adam and Eve, Eve's creation from the rib of Adam was queer. She writes, quote, If Adam and Eve shared the same karyotype, or chromosomes, that could make Adam a trans man and Eve a cis woman. Although the inverse could also be true. Adam could be thought of as a cis man, making Eve a trans woman. In either case, she says, the creation of a woman from a man's body comes with biologically queer implications and considerations, end quote. We are both excited and challenged by this interpretation of the creation of bodies in Genesis 1 and 2. These are new ideas to me, and when I first encountered them, I noticed a little bit of resistance of like, oh, oh, what beliefs and ideas am I going to have to shift to create room for this? But I am so drawn to the God who is a stranger, who is a surprise and an enigma and a puzzle to me, who is queer to me. And this means that I choose to leave the door open to the possibility of a God not like myself and let in a creation story, which I may not fully understand. The other reason we wanted to include this queer interpretation of the creation narrative is because the Come Follow Me manual chooses such a weird focus for this week's study. One of the three main focuses of this week's study is headlined with the statement, marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. There's a very, (laughs) I'm not going to include this, but I really am like so (laughs) tired of coming across this statement all the freaking time Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it's a very like tired yes yeah Yeah. so there's this part of me that like gets really nerdy about words and language and this is the part of me that has spent so many hours studying and looking at the text to find a male and a female in one being called adam so for me this claim that marriage is ordained between a man and a woman is pretty thin if we were to entertain the possibility that Adam might not have always been a man. And then if we include Osler's illustration of the queerness of the Genesis creation account, again, I look at the statement of marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and then lay it over the Genesis account and then I find that it reads more like Marriage between a man, who is either not a man or is a trans man, and a potentially trans woman is ordained of God. Then, if we zoom out just the tiniest little bit, we remember that all of this marriage stuff is happening in the narrative before the fall. Adam and Eve are still innocent at the end of Genesis chapter 2, and in this sense, they do not know that they are naked. In other words, they do not know to be ashamed of their nakedness, and this is a topic that we'll cover later, but in an LDS context, this state of innocence is taken to imply the lack of a sexual relationship. When the text is read in linear order, marriage occurs before Adam and Eve's sexual debut. What this implies to me is that marriage, not sex, is the focus of Adam and Eve's relationship, at least prior to the fall. My question is, if procreation was not the purpose of their marriage, what was? I'm not entirely sure, but I do think that current LDS rhetoric conflates the idea of marriage and procreation. The two are used nearly interchangeably, as if one implies the other. But the text does not use them interchangeably. Marriage is separated from procreation by the event of the fall. 
if we read directly from the text itself, marriage can be understood as a type of relationship and not a necessary precedent of procreation. So, if we read Genesis literally, the first, I'm putting that in quotation marks, the first marriage or the first deity-validated relationship of this particular kind was between a man who is either not a man or is a trans man and potentially a trans woman. Further, there is no mention in the text of an actual marriage ceremony. We have no words from God that say, okay, now, Adam, cisgender man, do you take Eve, cisgender woman, to be your copulation accomplice? There is no explicit ordination, no word from God's mouth that validates Eve and Adam's marriage relationship in any certain or recorded terms. God's acceptance or recognition of this relationship is implied and assumed, but never explicitly made. The assertion that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and the supporting Moses and Abrahamic accounts irrefutably prove that marriage between man and woman is the only one ordained by God is a truth claim that is never made in, nay, not even supported by the canonized text of Mormon tradition. There might be some people who will quote back to me the eighth article of faith and say, well, we only believe the Bible as far as it's translated correctly, and your translation is probably the product of faulty text. To that, I would say, well, our favorite prophet, Joseph Smith, translated the books of Moses and Abraham, and those texts also say the exact same thing. So I wanted to share this because this is so wild. I know that there will be some people who will say I'm mincing words and grasping for ethereal language straws, but language is not benign. It holds creative power and it shapes our understanding of who we are and what our place and purpose is in the world. Language can both reveal and obscure. It can hurt and it can heal. In the same way, the narrative of the creation of gendered bodies in Genesis chapter 2 can be both poison and antidote depending on our interpretation or the story that we tell about this story. Holy smokes. We're only, these are two chapters. This is the first week back on the podcast. We've got a two-part episode, and these two chapters have started the Old Testament out with some really big and difficult topics to wrestle with. In this episode, we've discussed the creation of human bodies in, in the last few verses of Genesis 1. We've explored the implications and also the problems with all bodies being made in the image of an exclusively masculine deity. The presence of the masculine normative pattern in patriarchal society, which shapes our assumptions about gender, about the gender of God and Adam. We've talked about what the text says about sex and the gender of Adam. We've talked about the process and implications of the ensouling or enlivening of the body of Adam. We've discussed Adam and Eve's gender assignments and offered a feminist critique of the complementarian explanation of the creation of Eve. And even a queer interpretation of the marriage between Adam and Eve. Holy smokes, it's a lot. We know that. So maybe the question that we have now is, okay, so what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? And really, there are infinite options here. So start wherever you feel called. A few ideas are learn about the difference between sex and gender. Maybe consciously pay attention to the masculine normative patterns and male normative pa patterns that show up in and influence your own life. 
inform yourself about intersex, non-binary, and trans experiences. Re-examine your assumptions about the story you think you know about the creation of human bodies and relationship models. What happens when you notice the similarities and differences between artistic renderings of God's body and your body, or God's body and other bodies? What feelings, sensations, thoughts, or emotions come to you during this exercise? Try to imagine what this experience would be like if you were in a different body. And finally, you might continue your own textual analysis and see what discoveries you make. You might find that our interpretation is incorrect or simply different than yours. Going forward on the podcast, one thing that we want to make sure that we say often is that we offer one way, not the way, to interpret the text. You'll probably notice over the next couple of weeks that there are other individuals who are engaged in similarly situated work, and they will have different and maybe even contradicting things to say about these chapters. This doesn't necessarily make us right and them wrong, or that their interpretation is right and ours is wrong. It simply makes them different, and you get to decide which interpretations inspire healing, challenge, growth, and love for you. For the 2022 you, reading this text right here, right now. If you feel challenged by this episode, or even part one of this episode, good. I'm excited about that. I feel challenged too. We also hope that you feel excited by the possibilities that a new interpretation can provide. For me, my relationship with the divine is woven through with threads of surprise. I enjoy these challenges the unexpected, this process of deconstruction, and the support in rebuilding, and the repeat, repeat, repeat of the process of raveling and unraveling. To wrap this story up, I wanted to share an old, old story that I know. There is a story in the Celtic tradition of the old woman at the end of the world. She is a weaver, and she spends her days creating a beautiful tapestry made from the threads of the experiences, the loves, the wonder, the breath, the sorrows, the loss, and the joys and delights of all the individuals and communities in the world. She weaves all of these together in the company of her enemy, a crow, who waits for the opportune moment when she turns away from her tapestry, maybe to put on a cup of tea or rub her exhausted hands. It's in this moment that the crow undoes the tapestry. For the crow knows that if the weaving were ever to be finished, the world would come to an end. And the old woman, returning to her tapestry in pieces, she does not fret and she does not sorrow. She turns to the crow as one would to a mischievous old friend and gives him a knowing look and begins a new tapestry with a new pattern, completely unlike the old one, and yet with all the same threads. The first, last, the last first, wefting love through the warp of wisdom and time. And so it is for me and my faith and my God, a tapestry never completed. Sometimes God is the weaver and sometimes God is the crow, but it is always together that we picture and create the story of the world, my world, our world, inextricably connected in perpetual love. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.